Hello, I'm Sarah Sanders. And I'm Phil Gibson. Welcome to Biota. In 1972, Sir Thomas Lucky estimated the number of bacterial cells you should expect in a typical human. Based on his back-of-the-envelope calculations, he estimated that there are roughly 10 to the 14th or 100 trillion single-celled microbes in the human digestive tract. Combined with estimates of how many microbes live on our skin, this gave an approximately 10 to 1 ratio of bacterial cells to human cells. This estimate has been repeated multiple times and become widely accepted in the scientific community. But there's just one problem. It's wrong. Biologists recently reconsidered this estimate, and when they used more accurate values and a better understanding of how and where microbes live in our digestive tract, they determined that the number of microbial cells in the gut is probably closer to 3 times 10 to the 13th, or 30 trillion cells, giving an approximate 1 to 1 ratio of microbial to human cells. The new ratio is lower, but that doesn't take away from what Sir Lucky was trying to point out, which is that there are a lot of microbes on and in our bodies, and, more importantly, that they play a critical role in the life of their host. Another way to think about this is that you are not just you, but you're also 30 trillion other organisms that play important and even essential roles in your day-to-day life. And that's our topic in this episode, the relationship between microbes and their host organism. Previously, we talked about microbes and how evidence of pathogens can be detected in wastewater. In this episode, we're going to think about the good or beneficial microbes we need to survive. We collectively refer to the microbes that live in and on us as the microbiome. In this episode, we'll hear from two researchers who study the gut microbiome, and they'll tell us about what it is, what it does, and why it's important. In the following episode, we'll learn more about how they use information from the microbiome to support conservation efforts for important animals like bears and other carnivores. But for now, let's start by focusing our attention on the gut microbiome. Our first guest is Dr. Erin McKinney from North Carolina State University. She's the Director of Undergraduate Research Programs in the Department of Applied Ecology. We'll start with her description of what the gut microbiome is. Okay, the gut microbiome is your superhero sidekick, uh, a galaxy living in your lower gut uh, from, you know, the day that you're born until some might argue till after you die because then you decompose and that's the work of microbes too but while we are alive the gut microbiome uh is is that collective community dazzling diversity um hundreds of trillions of bacteria belonging to over a thousand different species and it's not just bacteria there are also archaea there are viruses there are fungi there are protists um all sorts of amazing life. Um, But I tend to focus in my studies on the bacteria. That's what the gut microbiome is. All the microbes living in your intestines. But there's more to it than that. Dr. McKinney became interested in the gut microbiome when she read a paper that described how the digestive tract differs among animals with different feeding strategies and other ecological traits. We'll let her explain. One of the papers that my research mentor assigned us all to read was um, a paper by Hoffman in like 1989 um, and comparing the gut morphology, the gut microbiome, the feeding strategies and behaviors and the social behaviors of different ruminant species. 
So from the smallest antelope, uh, the dictic that eats, you know, uh, very high protein leaves that are not a very plentiful resource. So they tend to be more solitary animals so that they're not always competing over that limited food supply. Since they're solitary, they don't have the safety in numbers um, and they have a smaller stomach, right? So they're, they're, they feed more like squirrels, right? Little bites a little at a time so they can always dash away from predators compared to uh, wildebeest, right? At the other end of the spectrum of body size and of, of herbivorous feeding strategies. They're grazers. Um, grass is pretty low in nutritional value. So you just have to eat a lot of it and constantly. And that makes you very vulnerable unless you are surrounded by tons of friends. <laughs> so wildebeest have those huge herds. Um, they're highly social animals. Uh, they have the safety in numbers. And that means they can afford to plod along and eat mouthful after mouthful after mouthful of grass. So they have these huge stomachs. And it just absolutely blew my mind that the gut microbiome would overlap with so many different and distinct aspects of host life. And I knew I had to learn more. That's the main topic that we're going to be talking about in this and the next episode, how the gut microbiome of an animal is related to many different ecological traits and how there's a symbiotic relationship between a host and its gut microbiome that's shaped by what the animal eats and how that animal lives. These three things are connected, host ecology, host diet, and gut microbiome. When we consider the important interactions among them, biologists can investigate some interesting ecological questions. And that's where our next guest comes into the episode, Dr. Diana Lafferty. She's a wildlife ecologist at Northern Michigan University, and she's going to explain why the gut microbiome is important for the host they live in. That gut microbiome that has co-evolved with the species that they inhabit, and they're actually performing a lot of micro-ecosystem services that the host itself hasn't had to develop. So it's really those gut microbiomes that are extracting nutrients, that are aiding that digestion process, that are assimilating energy. And there are so many of these small services that are absolutely critical to the health and well-being of that host. And to me, that's a really exciting relationship that as a terrestrial ecologist, we just haven't spent a lot of time exploring. We look at these macro species this beautiful bear or this amazing mountain, but we don't always dig a little bit deeper and think about that relationship with all of those microbes that are critical to their survival. Those are two critically important points. First, the host animal and its microbiome often have a co-evolved relationship, which means that the evolution of one is shaped by the evolution of the other and that these relationships make them dependent on one another for survival. The second point is microecosystem services. The organisms in the gut microbiome are performing essential functions and services for their host. Another important thing to understand is that the microbiome is an ecosystem living inside the host's body. Like any ecosystem, it includes a collection of organisms of different species, what ecologists call a community. And this community is living in the ecosystem of the host gut, which has energy and materials flowing through it that the microbes use. This is the perspective Dr. McKinney bases her research on to study the gut microbiome. 
If she knows who is there, she can start to figure out why they are there based upon what is known about the microbes' ecological features and preferred habitats. So depending on what species uh, live in a community, in, in a particular animal's gut, um, we can, I love to do the detective work of, you know, here, here are the, the majority community members, you know, the top 10 taxa. And then I'll do a lit search and, and see, you know, where have we, where have we uh, as, as like broader science, where have scientists found these types of microbes living before? And that can kind of spell out um, their ecological niche space or their origins, um, their, their traits that make them well adapted to life in that particular animal's gut. Um, and it might be a particular host species like carnivore gut microbes tend to be aerobic organisms that are adapted to living in oxygenated conditions. Um, they tend to be generalists, so not highly specialized fiber digesters like you would find in an herbivore's gut. Um, they tend to be potential pathogens. So part of that opportunism is, is not just competing with the host for those easily digested fats and proteins, but um, something about living life in, in a fast flowing river. <laughs> um, you know, you can afford to be a pathogen and the host can actually afford to have a potential pathogen living in them. Not only because a carnivore has a highly acidic stomach um, to protect a bit against those potential diseases, but also because um, a short gut turns food to poop so quickly. <laughs> the, the passage rate is so fast that the, um, the pathogens don't have time to produce toxins to actually make the host sick. We'll be learning about carnivores in a lot more detail later. For now, the important thing to remember is that herbivores have longer, slower, less acidic digestive tracts that function kind of like a fermenter for digestion. Carnivores have shorter, faster, more acidic digestive tracts that move food through quickly. So, to summarize the main point so far, the features of the microbiome community and ecosystem inside a host's gut are related to how that host feeds. Structural and chemical features of the gut determine what organisms can live there and how long they can stay. We'll be returning to the topic of why the short time between eating and digesting makes carnivores useful for ecological studies. But for now, let's learn how researchers collect their specimens. Our guest will explain. Well, I'll tell you, it's super glamorous. You're either uh, tracking animals, and it could be in captive situations where you know you are you are watching animals um, in some sort of enclosure, or you might actually be out in the field in the wild. Um, either way, you're kind of waiting for stiff tails. That's a universal sign of an animal about to poop, right? <laughs> if they have a tail, um, so super glamorous. You're you're collecting poop or um, in, in some cases, um, it might be when animals are euthanized uh, under human care. We also work with hunters and trappers to sample their quarry. And at that time, we're able to also sample the actual gastrointestinal tract of the animal that they've harvested. So, they can get gut specimens from living or harvested animals. Once the specimens have been collected, they can begin isolating microbe DNA. Dr. McKinney will explain how that's done. 
<laughs> so you want at least um, a, a sample size, the size of a pea. It's about, you know, 0.25 milligrams. Um, and, and we do weigh it. Um, and then we use a DNA extraction kit to extract the DNA from the sample. And that's DNA from the bacteria, but also from any food that's left in the gut. It's also from the host intestinal cells that might have been shed along the gut um, and, and from fungi and viruses and anything else in the gut that has DNA. So the DNA extraction step gets us DNA, but from everything. <laughs> from there, um, we actually send standardized aliquoted samples um, either to, uh, well, Dr. Lafferty and I send our DNA uh, samples to Argonne National Labs or here at NC State campus. Um, we'll get the DNA to Dr. Carlos Scholar in the bioinformatics program. Um, and he'll take all of that DNA and then actually only amplify. So he'll use a polymerase chain reaction to only amplify a select a specific region of the 16S gene, which um, is, is in the genome of bacteria and archaea. So that helps us, you know, out of all the organisms that can possibly be represented in a DNA sample from the gut of this particular individual, using that 16S, um, it's, it's the V4 region, so the, the variable, the fourth variable region on the 16S gene. Um, and that helps us to distinguish different bacterial types from one another at the genus level. That's another important part of these microbiome studies that we want to emphasize. The researchers are looking for and isolating the 16S RNA gene sequence that is found only in prokaryotes. This allows them to study only bacterial or archaean organisms and not the other remnants of eukaryotes found in the gut. Doing this allows them to identify the members of the microbial community, at least to their genus. So, we know what they are studying, who they are studying, and how they collect their data. But we still have one important question to answer. Why? There are a lot of potential questions they could ask, but what Dr. McKinney and Dr. Lafferty most want to know is how and why does the microbiome change? How does it respond to what the animal eats? In one study, Dr. McKinney sampled the microbiome of primates called lemurs from birth to adulthood. Here is her explanation of that research and what it showed. One of my biggest questions for my PhD work with the lemurs, um, because we were in a captive setting under human management, um, we had access to animals on their first day of life, right? When else can you get a brand new baby lemur's very first tiny poop, right? That's like the cutest poop you could ever collect and study. Um, we've got to get it. <laughs> Um, <laughs> collected with the tiniest cotton swabs you can imagine. Um, <laughs> so so I, I'm very interested in the process of succession. How do communities grow and build and change over time? Um, I'm interested in primary succession. That would be that initial process from birth um, to maturity or, or adulthood. Or in this case, um, I collected samples from lemurs at birth uh, and then within the first week of their consuming their first solid foods, so the introduction of solid foods, the regular consumption of solid foods, 
and then weaning, which is when they are eating solid foods every day. And they're sneaking little sips of milk, but mom is not really having it anymore. <laughs> and then fully weaned when, you know, they haven't had milk in at least a month. So at that point, they've really um, converged on that adult, stable, mature, uh, climax community gut microbiome. So um, I compared that process of succession from birth to weaning across uh, three species. The... Um, the red ruffed lemurs who eat a lot of fruit um, and have shorter, simpler guts, though they do still have a cecum. Um, the ring-tailed lemur that has a more intermediate gut, it's, it's probably of lemurs, it's the most similar gut morphology to humans. Um, so an intermediate gut for eating a variety of food items in Madagascar. Um, and then the um, shifox, that eat leaves, so they're leaf-eating lemurs, and they have guts that are very long, six times the length of their body, um, and very complex. It's, it's like a lengthy palace <laughs> for the gut microbiomes. Dr. McKinney's work with lemurs found that the microbiome changes over time in a host based on what the host eats. It changes through a process ecologists call succession. We often think of succession as the changes in the plants we see in an area after a disturbance like a fire. Some plants appear in the burned area right after the fire. Others show up after the burned area has recuperated some. Over the course of succession, the community changes as organisms join and leave. Well, the exact same types of changes take place in the gut microbiome community as well. Since we were talking with Dr. McKinney about lemurs, we had to take a side trip and ask if she had worked with a particularly famous shafox some of you may remember by the name of Zabumafu. Yep, yep, Zabumafu. Zabumafu. Yep, his name was Jovian. And and he was he was in one of my studies. Yep, exactly. I studied his poops. <laughs> but getting back to why studies of the gut microbiome are important we need to appreciate the incredibly important role they play in the health and well-being of their host. Once more, Dr. McKinney will explain. So from everything that we know so far about gut microbiomes in general, gut microbes are increasingly recognized as, as inextricably linked and integral to nearly every life process. So if we want to maximize our own health as hosts or the health of species that we want to conserve and protect. And we need to understand what a baseline healthy gut microbiome is. And ideally we would have an understanding of that uh, healthy microbiome, you know, from day one to understand how do we grow the most beneficial microbiome from birth or support the growth of the most beneficial gut microbiome in order to support and maximize fitness and well-being throughout the animal's life, whether that animal is a human or another species. That's an interesting idea. Humans often think about what they eat and how it affects health, and as we have learned, one way it affects our health is by affecting our gut microbiome and influencing the ecosystem services it provides. But how often do we think about the idea of the microbiome and health for other animals, especially the wild ones? And that brings us to the heart of what Dr. Lafferty is interested in. 
What she wants to know is how can we use gut microbiome data as indicators of the environmental health in the host animal's ecosystem? My general goal is to try to understand how wildlife populations and their associated communities and ecosystems respond to environmental change. And within that context, I often use carnivores as my model species. And that's because carnivores often come into conflict with humans. So as we modify their environments, we're coming into contact with them more often. Um, carnivores also have a relatively simple gastrointestinal tract. So the things that go in come out pretty quick, which lets us use them as an indicator for what's going on in their environment because their internal systems um, are a really good reflection of what's happening in the ecosystem they inhabit. So if we start to think about the big picture, there are a lot of human-driven pressures like climate change or habitat destruction that we know are having negative effects on wild animal populations. Studying their gut microbiome may be a way to help us understand how these pressures are affecting animals and help us develop better conservation plans to protect them. How microbiome studies are being used for conservation work will be explored in the next episode. So for now, let's summarize the main points from this episode. First, the gut microbiome is a community of trillions of microbes, including bacteria, archaeans, fungi, viruses, and even the occasional parasite that are all living in your gut and calling it home. Second, the gut microbiome is your own personal ecosystem inside your intestines. It works like any other ecosystem and is composed of a community of different interacting microbial species. Next, the gut microbiome is a co-evolved community that provides essential ecosystem services the host itself can't perform. And finally, the gut microbiome is dynamic. It changes over the course of the host's life, and it changes in response to the host's diet and environment. In the next episode, we'll learn how conservation biologists are using these data to understand environmental change and protect species. That brings us to the end of this episode. We want to thank Dr. McKinney and Dr. Lafferty for their time and telling us about their work. Until next time, I'm Sarah Sanders. And I'm Phil Gibson. Thanks for listening, have a great day, and take very good care of your genetic material. Biota is a production of Under the Juniper Studios. All opinions are those of the author alone. Thank you.